Anthony, can you see me and can you hear me? Yes, I can perfectly, Simon. Thank you for having right. me. Well, good afternoon to you in the United States. It's evening here in London. I'm here in the city, in Rothschild's offices, and, and on my left, not that you can see it, is the Tower of London, and on my right is St. Paul's Cathedral. So I guess historically, I guess I'm somewhere between execution and redemption. But it's a great pleasure to have this conversation with you today, and on behalf of our guests at Rothschild & Co., I'd like to thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, it's a big honor to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, talking to you from my home in uh, Long Island, and that is uh, Don Lemon's uh, back screen there. It's also used for uh, Chris Cuomo's show. Um, and so I'm sitting here in my home studio. Fantastic. Well, you need little introduction, but in 50 words, you're an entrepreneur, an investor, a political consultant. You studied at Harvard Law School, worked at Goldman Sachs, set up Oscar Capital Management, sold it, and later established Skybridge Capital Management appointed the White House Communications Director in 2017, now a Biden supporter, and you're a regular on US TV. Anthony, you have been a busy man. Listen, it, uh, it, it, it's like everything in life. You're, you're, you're setting out to do one thing, and then God's laughing or Providence laughs, and you end up doing completely different things. But, you know, when I got, got out of Harvard Law School, uh, traditionally, that's an old boy's network, but I was a young boy in an old boys network. And my dad was a construction worker. Uh, I grew up in a blue collar household in a blue collar neighborhood where my parents never went to college. So I had a very hard time in the beginning days at Goldman. Uh, the first thing I had to do, Simon, is shed my polyester suits. And so, you know, I, I had my first job interview at the Charles Hotel uh, adjacent to the Harvard Law School. And the Goldman partner looked at me and said, you're a smart kid, but you're dressed in 100 percent polyester you are fully flammable for this job interview. I can't bring you down to Goldman Sachs dressed like this. And I remember being horrified by that, uh, but it was a right, a self-conscious rite of passage for me. And so lo and behold, I'm down at Goldman. I'm supposed to be uh, securing high net worth individuals uh, in terms of you know, garnering accounts and so forth, but I don't have a network. Never swung a golf club, never uh, swung a tennis racket, not a member of a country club or any of those legacy things. So. I started a foray in political fundraising, and I wrote my first check to Rudolph Giuliani in 1989. So I'm just going to pause you there because I have to admit one thing, which is that you are a little bit younger than me. You look a lot younger than me, but I, too, applied to, uh, to, to join Goldman Sachs back in 1985 in their private client department, and I was told I should ask the interviewer that I wanted to do portfolio management at Goldman Sachs. And when I said that, the guy then promptly told me they didn't do it. So I didn't start my career at Goldman Sachs. But I want to just go back a step, the early days. Your father came from Umbria in Italy. You were born and grew up clearly in a close family you've talked about. I'd love to know how that upbringing and background shaped you. Well, listen, I got raised by two fairly strict uh, Catholic Italian women, my my Nana and my mom. You know, my dad, uh, as I mentioned, was an hourly worker, so he had a 12-hour shift. I can remember my mother putting his lunch pail in the refrigerator at night. He got home at 3.15, uh, and if you weren't at his dinner table at 5.15, there was corporal punishment to be had. Uh, so it was a, it was a strict, uh, he was a tough guy. Uh, but, you know, listen, the family had a lot of love in it. Um, my father uh, was committed to the idea that his children would go to college. Both my brother and I uh, went to college. My sister, uh, you know, she did sort of a junior college, a two-year program. 
Um, but, you know, back then, these Italian families uh, were very close knit. There were Sunday spaghetti or pasta. There was church at 9 a.m. On a, on a Sunday morning. And uh, it was fairly traditional. And so um, for me, I think that that grounded me because at the end of the day, uh, you know, those two old Italian ladies that raised me, you know, they knew the difference between right and wrong. Uh, and it was very important for them. And, you know, I got raised as a Catholic. So, uh, you know, I, I get, you know, money matters to me. I'm not saying it doesn't. And it's obviously something I pursued because I wanted to have some level of financial independence. I knew that I would need to support my parents as they got older and so forth. Uh, but it's not the end all be all. So uh, that was one of the reasons why I got attracted into the opportunity to work in the White House. Okay, so Trump and the election is going to be the centerpiece of our conversation tonight. But before we discuss outcomes and your perspectives as a Biden supporter, and before we talk about Donald Trump himself, how did your own political odyssey begin and, and why? Well, I'll take you way back. I'm 18 years old. I'm going up to the local post office. I've got the voter registration card. I'm with my, my dad. I turn to my pops. I say, well, am I a Republican or a Democrat? He says, no, no, you're a Republican. Uh, because at that time in Nassau County, the unions were controlled by the Republicans. And so this is an obscure fact. David Axelrod had actually worked for President Obama and President Clinton. When I did his podcast, he was the only person that was like, you know, you're a Republican because the unions in Nassau County were controlled by Republicans. I said, yeah, that's correct. So uh, I went to college. Reagan was obviously in office. I, I spent a semester in London at the London School of Economics when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. And so it sort of steeped me in some level of uh, Republican or right-leaning politics. I've always been a New Yorker, and so I'm fairly socially inclusive. I'm sort of agnostic on things like gay marriage or a woman's right to choose, but I've always been somewhat center-right market-based. Uh, and so I went to, went to work, needed to build a network. I wrote a $250 check, as I mentioned, to Rudy Giuliani. He lost that election in 1989. And that was actually very good for me because I built a relationship with him when he was in his law practice. And I helped him again in 1993, which was a successful race. Uh, and then there's a little irony here, Simon, which I think you would appreciate. He introduced me to George Pataki, who became the first Republican governor in 12 or 16 years. Uh, but then Rudy being Rudy, he switched sides and endorsed Mario Cuomo while I was working for Governor Pataki. So uh, it was uh, we always joke about that. And so uh, there I was. I was the garden variety Wall Street person working in Republican Party fundraising into one of my law school colleagues uh, by the name of Barack Obama decided to run for president. And I didn't know him super well in law school, uh, but uh, I have a cute story. My buddies knew him well. They invited me to a dinner at the university club on 60th Street. It was July of 2007. I walked in. I had a check in my lapel. I went over to Senator Obama. I said, listen, we didn't really know each other well in law school, but I'm about to give you a, a pretty big check. And I just fib to everybody and tell everybody how well we knew each other. And then Senator Obama looked at me and said, well, uh, if you double the size of the check, we could take it right back to Hawaii. And so, you know, it was a big laugh. And of course, I doubled the size of the check which speaks to his charm. He arguably has the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. And so he was the one lone outlier for me in, in Democratic Party politics. But then I returned to my roots with Governor Romney and then ultimately Jeb Bush. 
And then obviously when the vice, uh, when Governor Bush came out of the race, I was recruited by uh, then Mr. Trump and I accepted the invitation to join his campaign. So let's just pause there on being elected uh, president. Donald Trump was the 45th president. He was then the oldest first-term president. That might be uh, that might be changed in the uh, in the history books in a few weeks' time. And he is described as many things: populist, protectionist, nationalist, isolationist. All of which suggest a plan or a philosophy at work. Now you know him. How would you describe his thinking? Well, you know, it's very reflexive uh, and it's intuitive. And so what I would say about the president is I think his detractors make a very big mistake in demonizing him uh, because there's a lot of complexity to his personality. And when you demonize somebody, you sort of create this cartoon character and you have these sort of binary emotions towards somebody. So I, I choose not to demonize him. I no longer support him because of his actions and his deeds as president. And I think it's quite dangerous what he's doing. And I think it's uh, disruptive to the American de democracy. It's disruptive to the post-World War II architecture. And it's causing a lot of anxiety uh, in the United States and around the world. And of course, he's mishandling the COVID-19 crisis, which I'm happy to talk about. But, but I would say that he is primarily reflexive. He is remarkably insecure. This is something I'm, I was always astonished by. And so uh, what you find when you're managing a company or you're running something, when somebody's insecure, they have a tendency to overcompensate with bluster or over-emote in certain directions. And so, you know, he's smarter than his generals, a sign of insecurity. He's a very stable genius, another sign of insecurity. Or on March 6th, he's standing there with the CDC head, uh, and basically saying that he knows more than the epidemiologist because his his professor John Trump at MIT was a genius, and so therefore he's a genius. All of that stuff is overcompensation. So what ends up happening with Mr. Trump, he wants to be the star of the show. He's running the presidency as a one-man West End or Broadway show. There can be no co-stars. And if anybody gets credit on that stage... He gets upset with it. And the most recent example of that would be Dr. Anthony Fauci. All right. So when you're there in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the Oval Office, how does he treat his staff? Is it ruled by fear or does he actually consult? And if so, when does he consult? Well, it's more ruled by impetuosity. He's not a fear guy one-on-one. -on -one. He has more of a keyboard warrior style to his personality. He's very non-confrontational one-on-one. I can give you many examples of that. But, but what, what, what I found odd about the whole thing is uh, I want to paint for you a more relaxed Donald Trump on the campaign, a Donald Trump not thinking he's going to win the election, not saying that he wasn't trying to win. He was certainly emptying the, uh, the gas tank in the campaign. We were doing a lot of a lot of trips in the last 48 or 72 hours. I uh, certainly wanted to win. People that say they didn't want to win, they weren't on the campaign, they didn't understand that. But there was none of us on that campaign from Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Jerry Kushner. None of us thought at 6 p.m. on election night, November 8, 2016, that he was winning. And I'll give you a little bit more evidence of that. I was hosting Wall Street Week for the Fox Business Channel. I did that show for a couple of years uh, before I left to join the administration. And I was at the Fox News decision desk meeting, uh, which was about 5.36 p.m. on election night. And Chris Steyerwalt, the editor, uh, was calling the election for Secretary Clinton. 
He said that the exit polling data in Florida suggested that she was going to win Florida, and therefore this would be an early evening and we'd be uh, calling the election around 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And of course, none of that happened. And so now we flip into the transition. Uh, none of us slept. It's that Wednesday morning. We're in Mr. Trump's office, 26th floor, Trump Tower. Uh, and he's elated, but at the same time, he's a little shocked. And a result of which he was actually really paying attention. He was actually really listening. And I said, we got two really good weeks with him where he was like, okay, this is a big job. I need to bring in a lot of experts and I'm going to try to make very smart and clever hiring decisions. Fast forward to January 21st, my first day on the job, a different guy, a very brittle, uh, certainly not in love with the media onslaught. And there was a lot of dysfunctionality in the White House for the first six months. And so what I caught when I was there for the 11 days was a man speaking to himself in a very long run on sentence. It was sort of stream of consciousness thinking and he really wasn't listening to many people, if, if at all listening to anybody, but he was more, more or less talking at people as opposed to with them. So let's talk about this upcoming election. The first televised debate in the U.S. was September 1960, just over 60 years ago, Richard Nixon and JFK. And there's been vigorous debate and some acrony, acrimony from time to time. But what one just witnessed with the Trump-Biden couldn't have been starker in contrast. Gone was youth. Gone was respect, gone was restraint. Instead, we had rancor and rudeness, and many past U.S. presidents and prospective presidents come to mind in comparison. I only met Barack Obama once briefly to talk to, um, and whether you agree with his or politics or not, like many of his predecessors, he embodied civility and good manners. How do you think the rest of the world viewed that spectacle the other night? Well, listen, you know, I, I publicly stated it was an embarrassment for the United States, and I'm sure it, it, it alarmed people around the world because, you know, whether you like the United States or dislike the United States, uh, there's a 75-ish year history where we have a peaceful transfer. We have a 244 years history of a peaceful transfer of power, but there's a certain semblance that the United States is sitting relatively close to the top of the post-World War II architecture and is acting as a benevolent democracy and is thinking about ways to further peace and prosperity around the world. Uh, but you could see in that debate, there was a bellicosity of rhetoric and as you pointed out, rudeness. But if you go back to September, 1960, uh, that was a rigorous debate. I've watched that debate several times between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. And they were talking about obscure things like the islands of Komoi and Matsu on, and what the US military would do if the Chinese government, the Communist Party had invaded those islands, which were fairly close to Taiwan. And so that was a very rigorous debate. We've moved 60 plus years now into antics and sort of seeing if we can one up each other in terms of nicknames and sort of ad hominem attacks. But I think this last debate was terrible. And I can explain why, because I know Mr. Trump's personality very well or President Trump's personality. He got to that stage, he was amped up, he was probably not feeling well. It's unclear if he had COVID at that moment, but he looked bad. You know, he, the orange paint that he usually puts on his face looked off, he was sweating. Uh, and so he came in hot in the beginning to talk about the Supreme Court nomination and the decision-making of putting forth that Supreme Court nominee. Uh, I thought he started out okay, frankly, you know, reasonably strong. And then it dawned on him, okay, wait a minute, there could be 60 or 70 million people watching this. 
And the Liz pendants against me is pretty rough. I've mishandled the COVID-19 crisis, which has unfortunately crushed the U.S. economy, which has unfortunately created this healthcare scare in the United States. And oh, by the way, I've also weakened the global alliance. And so um, uh, the vice president had an opportunity for 90 minutes to explain that Mr. Trump had made the United States sicker, weaker, and poorer. And as soon as that clicked in for Mr. Trump or the president, uh, he immediately went into overdrive. And it was almost like a boxer trying to rope a dope or to distract or disorganize his opponents so that he couldn't get out the 90 minute negative advertisement about what Mr. Trump has done or President Trump has done over the last four years. So, so we'll have to see if they actually get to a debate next week. I predict that they will because the poll numbers are graphically poor for the president. Uh, and we'll have to see how he handles himself at that debate. But it could be very rough for him again, because uh, what he's surprised by with Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, he's very well prepared for these debates. And he's very good in a one on one debate, did not shine on a platform of 10, six, eight people uh, during the Democratic primaries. But he handled Bernie Sanders pretty well. Uh, and he was about to really handle President Trump quite well in that first debate. So let's talk about the Bidenomics, Trumponomics. So we understand Trump's broad thesis and push. Um, the Roosevelt Institute is advising the Biden camp, and they're drawing a parallel with the big ramp up in expenditure in the U.S. in the Second World War between 41 and 45. And actually, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, writing in the Daily Telegraph, said that this time the sort of the equivalent mobilization is two trillion in the war against carbon. Now, you're an investor. I mean, what do you think about those economic plans? Well, listen, you know, don't go by me. We could, we could look at the Moody's uh, article that came out, the research report, or J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs, all of which comparatively are saying the Biden economic plan is a sounder, more jobs-creating economic plan than the Trump plan. Uh, the great irony about Mr. Trump is he is a profligate spender. Uh, this nonsense about conservatism in the United States and the hypocrisy there is the Congress has allowed him to run amok with the spending. I'm not talking about the COVID-19 spending. Let's take that out for a moment. Let's look at the three years leading up to COVID-19 uh, while spending. Uh, the Obama administration had brought those levels down as a percentage of GDP, got the actual number into the five, $600 billion zone. We zipped it up to 1.2 trillion under a supposed conservative uh, Republican. So uh, to me, I think the Biden, plan is a sounder plan. And I do think that we need another reset. We're going to need a reset in terms of the way the world thinks about the world. Uh, now, I'm not a, I'm a Republican, lifelong Republican, but I'm not a science denier and I'm not a climate denier. And we're having a very big frat party with the world. Uh, we're burning it up. It's like a Saturday night in a college frat house in the United States. And we want our children and our grandchildren to live in that frat house on Sunday morning. And I think that's gonna be really rough and really bad for the world. So we have to make an investment that moves us to a different standard of energy, more efficient energy, less carbon reliant. I think we have to do that. We have to make that investment. I think it would be wise to make that investment. And if we also change up the way we think about our infrastructure, we'll create tremendous amounts of positive externalities and we'll heal something that's happening in the United States, but it's also happening in the UK, perhaps France, than other Western nations. There's a lot of discontent by lower 
and middle-class people. And in the U.S., it's predominantly white workers. It's white ethnic workers, frankly, like my dad, uh, where a family like mine in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was an aspirational working-class family. These families, 35 short years later, have transitioned into desperational working-class families. And this is why you see this specter, this rise of populism, this rise of nationalism, and politicians seeing themselves as an avatar of the anger of these people. Uh, and I think we would be better served to finding them good policy solutions. So when you look through the Biden plan, comparatively, uh, I think that plan is well suited to doing that. So you could end up, if we think about this over long periods of time, five, 10 or 15 years, with a more energy efficient, better environment, uh, and we could help heal this divide that's going on as it relates to the wealth gap in the United States and perhaps parts of the rest of the world. So you made a really good point about global governance. And clearly we have on the one hand China's rise and ambition and, and its holding of views that many would regard as very different or even antithetical to, to the West. So what would you like to see to try and rebuild some of that architecture with the U.S.'s natural allies that's been missing? What do you want to see from Biden? Well, listen, you know, we are always strongest. I would I would really ask people to go back and look at some of you mentioned the Roosevelt Institute. Look at some of Franklin Roosevelt's speeches in 1940 uh, uh, prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. Look at some of his speeches in 43. Uh, Nigel Hamilton, a great British historian, has written a trilogy about Roosevelt, which I would recommend to people. Uh, he sort of said, well, if, if Franklin Roosevelt didn't die, this would sort of be a synthesis of his memoir based on his writings and speeches. And I think Franklin Roosevelt understood this. It was a neo-Victorian concept for that time uh, that we were way better together and that uh, the United States, the largest standing industrial power, needed to help other nations, whether it was through the Marshall Plan or the General Agreement in Trade and Tariffs, where we unevened the trade deals, made them unfair to the U.S., uh, but we were betting that there would be rising living standards as a result of that. And so, you know, for me, I'm super happy uh, to go back into that direction. Now, we're a different country today. We don't have 65 percent of the world's GDP. But we have 25% of the world's GDP, and we still have the world's uh, military-industrial complex. And so uh, we just need to re-engineer this now and get closer to our natural allies and, and frankly, check our adversaries. Uh, but we have to figure out a way to work with them as well. The world has gotten smaller, Simon. We both know this. Uh, the social media has made it smaller. Uh, the international commerce and globalism has made it smaller. And so let's, let's pursue that. Okay, so let's get to the, 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 the question that is on all our lips. Who wins, A, and B, what do they win control of? And by that, of course, I mean is control of the Senate probably means the difference between fiscal expansion or fiscal gridlock. Well, listen, I, you know, these polls are tough to analyze because last time, uh, you know, Nate Silver said it was a one in four chance that Mr. Trump was going to win. Uh, he was roundly criticized by people that said that it was less than a one in 12 chance. And so ultimately, Mr. Trump won. So it was a one in one chance. And so today, uh, you know, Mr. Silver saying it's sort of, a, you know, let's call it a one in eight or one in nine chance. Uh, so he could still win. And what we do know is that there seems to be a hidden Trump vote. There seems to be people uh, that think it's socially inappropriate to tell a pollster that they're voting for Mr. Trump. 
And so even when you factor that in, though, and let's say we give Mr. Trump the margin of error in these polls, I do think that we end up, I mean, Joe Biden ends up winning. Uh, but, you know, two weeks in Trump world, Simon, that's like 100 years. So I, it's very hard. Uh, but having said that, if uh, the vice president wins, what happens in the Senate? It does seem like if you look at states like Iowa and Arizona and other states where there's some stress for the red side of the equation, you could pick up, you know, plus six or seven Senate seats for the Democrats. If that happens, uh, well, you know, you're going to run the card table because they're clearly going to keep the House. That's my opinion. They have a shot at the Senate. And if they win the presidency, I think it's a start of a reboot for America. And I'll make a prediction that most people may think of, may not think of. It'll be positive for the economy. I think the stock market will like that. I think there's some Trump fatigue in the stock market, frankly, and I think that sort of return to normalcy will help people. So the question that doesn't seem to be asked, so I want to discuss that with you, is that these are two elderly gentlemen, um, and there are, of course, two potential vice presidents under each of them who could come to the surface. So how do you think about that in terms of their respective merits and demerits? Okay, well, let's talk about the one I know best, which is uh, Vice President Pence. I, I've known him for a decade plus. I actually worked with him on the Republican Governors Association uh, when he headed that about 10 years ago. He's a very bright, very articulate guy. He did a very good job in the state of Indiana. Uh, I think his critics would say that he's been too much of a supplicant for Mr. Trump. Uh, and so he's been overly abiding to him. Uh, but I think he's a very capable, safe pair of hands. And so... Uh, he would be tarred if he were to rise to power, God forbid, as a result of a calamity. He would be tarred somewhat by the, the Trump tie. But by and large, I think he's an effective uh, politician and, and a very good administrator. And I like him a great deal personally. As it relates to Senator Harris, I know her less well. Uh, sort of a series of coincidences. I was traveling on a bipartisan trip to Israel in November of 2017. And the then senator and her husband were on the same trip. So we had the opportunity to converse with each other. I find her to be very smart, very charming. Uh, she's very together. She's tough. Uh, she has a good record of governance. And so I think also she would be a safe pair of hands, uh, but it would be a different sort of hands. I think that uh, one of the things that I fear, remember, I'm a lifelong Republican, I'm voting for Joe Biden because I think that he will return normalcy. And I believe that Mr. Trump, unfortunately, is threatening the sacred institutions of our democracy, threatening the checks and balances in our system. And those are the things that I'm worried about. You don't want to tilt the 244-year wonderful American experiment into something that's more autocratic than it has previously been, particularly at this time in world history. Uh, his advocacy for dictators, as an example, and his denigration of democratic leaders, I find very offensive and I find it to be quite dangerous. In addition to what he's doing internally, uh, lots of racial tension, lots of racist dog whistles. And he's actually, as Jim Mattis said, a personal friend of mine, Secretary Mattis, uh, the four-star general, said that he's the first president in his lifetime that is more interested in dividing America than uniting it. And so for these reasons, uh, I would like to see him dispatched, uh, but not for po certain policy reasons. You know, I'd be worried about the vice president, Harris, rising to the presidency 
if she got overly attached to what people in our country call the radical left. I don't think the country wants to lurch that far leftward. I think this was a dilemma that the Obama administration had. I think ultimately, if you invite President Obama on one of these uh, podcasts or webcasts, if you will, and he's being honest, he would say probably a little bit too hard leaning on the blue tribe during his eight years. Uh, And to quote Van Jones, who's a CNN analyst that worked for President Obama in the White House, what Van would say is that the election of Donald Trump was a little bit of a white lash, if you will. Um, And so you certainly don't want that. We need a transformative leader. We need somebody that's not going to think about this as left or right, but focus on policy that is right or wrong for America. And I and I'm hoping that the vice president with his 47 ish years of experience could be that person or could help us move in that direction. So we've had one question here from a client, which seems sort of a good time to ask it, which is, can you see a situation where President Trump refuses to leave the White House? So, you know, I mean, there are scenarios where the election is so close that he's going to bring a lawsuit and it's a Bush versus Gore like scenario. But I see those scenarios, frankly, being resolved by January 20th. Uh, Some of you may know this. You can Google this. That term is over on January 20th. If there is still a fractious indecision related to the election, Nancy Pelosi will become the interim president until that can be worked out. And so he has to be dispatched from the White House on November 20th. And so uh, one thing I know about him, uh, and again, I'm trying to make this as objective as possible, is that he doesn't like personal confrontation. So he has a tendency for bluster and he's a tendency... He's overcompensating for something with the bravado, but I really don't see him uh, in a situation where he doesn't concede uh, if it's a if it's a loss. If it's a real loss, I think he concedes. And so maybe I'm contrarian in that. A lot of people in the media are suggesting otherwise, uh, but I know him pretty well, and I don't I don't think he has a stomach for that. I would also tell you that if you want to convert the democracy of the United States into an autocracy, you're going to need help from the American military. He does not have that. He's a very unpopular figure with active generals and retired generals. And he's also an unpopular figure with the enlisted men and women. You can just look at the polling. Most of them are Republicans, but most of them are going to be voting against him. So uh, I don't see how he can do it, uh, frankly. But, you know, look, what do we know about the Trump era? Anything can happen. And so I'm not saying it's a zero percent probability, but I would say 70, 80 percent that he leaves and he leaves more quietly than people would probably expect, given what, he, what his words have been up until now. Right. Was it General Kelly who said that no relationship with the president ends well? He did, yeah. He said that on my—I uh, was interviewing him for my Salt Talk series. You can find that on our YouTube channel. Uh, the general, the great irony there is I was fired by the general after 11 days. Obviously, I made a mistake that I'm accountable for, although I was pretty prescient on Steve Bannon. I probably shouldn't have said it in that off-color way. But, you know, remember, it was an Italian, it was an Italian-American journalist from my hometown who my family had a 50, 50-year relationship with his dad. So that was my mistake. I have to own that mistake. Uh, but the silver lining for me is the man that fired me, uh, the White House chief of staff, a four-star general, 40-plus years in the U.S. Marine Corps, a gold star family member. He lost his son, Robert, 10 years ago in Iraq. has become a very close personal friend of mine. And so In my interview with him, he called for more character in terms of the decision-making process, less about policy, 
And he suggested that, unfortunately, all relationships with Mr. Trump do not end well. And you can see that it's manifested itself now with at least 80 or 90 archers from the White House. And I'll point out to everybody on this call uh, that the people that are with him now, they either have a pecuniary interest to be with him. They're related to him by DNA or marriage or they've got nowhere else to go. The people that have backbones and the people that were willing to give him a alternate opinion to what he was thinking about, uh, they're long gone from that White House. And that should trouble people. That should trouble people if he wins re-election, because obviously he'll be more strengthened and more emboldened in sort of some of the craziness that he's been enacting over the last year and a half. I mean, one of the questions that you know, I hear asked in UK and Europe is the US rich in institutions and intellectual wealth as well as physical wealth produces so often such such uninspiring candidates. And do you think that that might be changing? Do you, or, 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 and if so, why would it change? Uh, well, maybe I'm overly optimistic. I think it will change because it's a generational thing. I think that the, the baby boomer generation, you know, perhaps this is true in Great Britain, but I've sort of really studied this in the United States. Uh, it seems it's gone from Woodstock to where we are now, uh, making various transitions, but most of them have been based on self-interest and most of them have been based on over-promising uh, to the electorate. And most of it has been based on uh, the person, the candidate being right and their opponent being absolutely wrong. So we've created this black and white drama, if you will, heavy polemics, heavy polarization, where the greatest generation didn't do that. Maybe they were bonded together by the national purpose of the war. Uh, maybe they felt compelled to uh, see a patriotic vision for America as opposed to a partisan one. I, I don't know. But I can look at my adult children. My oldest son just graduated from Stanford Business School. He's 28 years old. He's more technocratic and he's more disciplined around making the right or wrong decisions. I, I, I think the next generation will probably be less rancorous. Now, I'm hopeful of that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be worse. Uh, uh, I, I, would, I would find it hard to imagine it being worse. But what I would say to everybody, think about this rhetorically. Where are the 10, 15, and 20-year plans for Western democracies? Uh, the Chinese have a 100-year plan. They have a plan 2049. You could look at it on the web in terms of where they want to be, in terms of their cities and their infrastructure and their education, and they're lifting uh, people out of poverty. Where, where is Great Britain or the United Kingdom? Where is the United States in terms of these plans? We used to think long-term. Uh, John Kennedy said he wanted to put men on the moon uh, You know, inside of a decade. George Kennan uh, when he wrote to Harry Truman and to George Marshall, he explained the issues around Soviet hegemony, and he wanted to have a doctrine of containment, which was abided by by both parties uh, for three decades. Uh, it was a long-term plan to contain and ultimately eradicate Soviet communism. A, a different sort of thing has risen in Russia, somewhat similar, but different. Uh, and But we've lost our way that way. And so hopefully we can get back to that thinking uh, the very bad news about all this is that the problems that we have, the good news is they are solvable. They were created by men and women, mostly men, but they are solvable. Uh, but the bad news is they will take a period of time, longer than a two-year or a, a two-year congressional cycle or a four-year uh, presidential term. Uh, these are problems that can be resolved, 
but we have to have discipline and willpower and we have to sit it out for over a 10 to 20 year period of time. So just turning to today, the virus still rages. If you were in the White House now, what would you do? Well, if I was in the White House now and I couldn't find the cyanide pill, like if it wasn't under my desk, Simon, I couldn't take the cyanide pill, uh, I, would, I would have a coming to Jesus moment with the president. I would have to have an intervention with him, which would cause me to be immediately fired. But my coming to Jesus moment with him would be, listen, you know, you, you tried the fake science routine and you tried to disavow the virus. And this has been a good 45 year plan for you as it related to your commercial success and your political success in terms of exaggerating or, you know, using lies and mistruths to create an image or a reality distortion. But you can't lie about the science, sir. And so therefore, we've got to look to epidemiology and public health and we have to look to the natural sciences and our observation of the planet, the 6,000 year history of our scientific observation. And while we don't know a lot, certainly, and there's a lot of things that we need to know, but there seems to be certain things that have worked in past plagues. And there seems to be certain things, frankly, that are working in other countries. And so as an example, South Korea got the disease on the same day we did, January 21st, 2020. They have 20 deaths per million. We have over 600 deaths per million. Uh, and why don't we look to their po protocol and their best practices and see if we can create a nationwide effort to do that now uh, so that we can stem the tide of further deaths coming. Otherwise, we're going to have 400, 500,000 people dead, possibly a million. Uh, and I think that that's a tragedy that the American people and citizens of the world that are in this dilemma, I don't think we want that. So one question that, uh, again, has come from uh, from a client, which is, Mr. Scaramucci, where where are you in your own political odyssey? Well, listen, it's been very painful for me. I what I would what I would tell people is be be careful what you wish for in life. And so uh, and I think I mentioned to you to you this, Simon, when uh, we had our our early call to talk about this event you know, my mistake was I was in a very nice lane. I was a garden variety Wall Street fundraiser. Uh, when the president won, I did something that my wife begged me not to do, which is I got tempted by the process. And so the minute I put my ego in my pride into my decision making, I started making really bad decisions. And so this would be true for investors as well. Uh, we have to take our pride and ego out of our decision making. In my case, uh, when I had it in there, my emotions were up and my intelligence went down and I went to go work for Mr. Trump in the wrong job and for the wrong reasons. And so I was actually hired to be the hatchet man uh, to move out Steve Bannon and Rice Priebus. And uh, this is obscure, but I was in the study off the Oval Office the day before Mr. Trump hired me. And you know, we didn't even know the position I was gonna have until he figured out that there was an office open and he didn't replace Mike Dubkey, and so he wanted me to be the comms director. I should have said right then and there, I'm not well suited for that job. That shouldn't be my job. But I didn't. I was overwhelmed by the gravitas of the moment, the temptation to take the job, frankly, the closeness to power. And so uh, my ejection from that job and the subsequent three years for me, it's sort of been like the Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you ever watched that movie, but I've gone through a very long, thin sewer pipe to get to where I am today. And so uh, I feel very compelled to speak out about this because I see the historical danger. 
Um, I see what could happen if we continue to make really bad decisions from a public health and safety perspective. Uh, and so that's all I'm doing. You know, I don't see myself working in the Biden administration or anything like that. Um, and, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm running for reelection in my marriage, Simon, and I think I'm on like a one day term. So I've got to I got to be in campaign mode most days. And for all I know, I could be term limited. So I'm just really trying to focus on my family right now. Yeah, well, if I recollect the Shawshank Redemption, they crawl their way to sunshine at the end, and so they uh, did. you know what? They did. No, I'm in a better, in a better place today than I was three three years ago, and I'm in a wiser place. I think the humbling of that firing has made me way more psychologically minded. You know, one of my liberal friends said, "Well, Trump is the same person 2015 that he was in 2020, saying bad things about Mexicans, and he was uh, banning Muslims from the country." But you were supporting him then. Why are you not supporting him now? And my answer is, well, he may be the same person. But I am not the same person. I am. A, I'm a different person today. I'm more humbled by my life experience, more psychologically aware uh, and, and more aware of how reckless decisions at the top can really have very negative ramifications on a lot of people. And so we have to see work our hardest to make sure that those things happen less. Well, Anthony, I really have liked hearing your candor, your honesty, your humor. I think it's refreshing. Maybe we'd all like to see a bit more of you. Um, and it's been a real treat um, for us to have you here tonight and to, to listen to you talk about, you know, what's going on, your side of the, of the pond. Well, I appreciate it, Simon. And the pleasure is mine. I, 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 I wish we couldn't, I wish we could be there together and not virtually. And hopefully that will come. And uh, hopefully you'll give me the opportunity to do that sometime in the future. We certainly will. But thank you on behalf of us all. Thank you very much again for joining us tonight. Great to be here. It's a great honor for me, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.